thank you thank you sir a uh, very uh, warm welcome to everyone on this uh, uh, today's mei speaks uh, series we have uh, with us today dr gal real who is a uh, assistant professor of uh, political science in in the department of politics and government uh, at the ben gurion university of the negev in israel and he is going to uh, discuss his uh, latest book uh, as i said with a rather provocative subtitle israel's regime untangled between democracy and apartheid uh, we all know that israel is uh, you know a rather polarizing debate when it comes to its political system its political culture and there has been several accusations of israel turning into an apartheid state and on the other hand uh, israel is one of the perhaps only functional democracies in the middle east so in between uh, this polarizing debate there is certainly a lot to learn and understand about the israeli political system and uh, i hope that with this book uh, you know dr gail is really will be able to make a significant contribution in terms of expanding that debate in terms of extending that debate uh dr arieli uh, has been you know studying this subject for a long time he has done his phd from university of haifa uh, in 2009 and after that he has also taught at uh, a number of Uh, universities and institutions in israel uh, including at the university of haifa and uh, at the ben gurion you know refereed articles a long list of you know refereed articles it will take a long time uh, for me to uh, go into the details of it but he has been a prolific writer which i can see uh, from his cv uh, he has also been a recipient of several honors and research grants uh, both in israel and outside uh, including the israel foundation trustees uh, grant for his uh, you know phd work as well as the german israeli foundation you know grant uh, for you know his research project on basic human values the memory of the holocaust and public attitude towards asylum seekers in israel he has also been recipient of several other honors and awards during his you know career as a phd scholar and as a researcher and a professor at the ben gurion university uh, without further ado may i now request dr arieli to kindly uh, start presentation we will have around 25 to 30 minutes for your presentation and then uh, you know we'll have 35 minutes for question answers uh, i'll right away start this powerpoint share the powerpoint well thank you thank you very much for your kind word and as well for the invitation Uh, to take part uh, uh, on the discussion. Um, I hope that in the future, the, the post-COVID future, someday we would uh, be able to meet not in uh, this format and to have much more uh, uh, in-depth uh, discussion. I have to apologize that due to uh, technical issues, I cannot control the slides from here. So I will raise my hands a few times during my talk in order to signal the next slide so it's not i don't mean anything beside the technical uh, issue so we can start uh, you might know that uh, last january uh, israel leading human rights group uh, betselem declared that israel is an apartheid regime yeah next kumar another slide okay uh, a move that Sentinels waves around the globe. Uh, another prominent human rights organization 
Human Rights Watch, one of the most leading uh, INGOs in the world uh, on this issue, also argue in a very detailed report that Israel is an apartheid, or at least Israel is committing uh, apartheid crimes um, against, uh, against the Palestinians. A conflicting views of Israel from the one end as the only democracy in the Middle East or as an apartheid regime are common at least in the last two decades. These opposing perspectives are not a just manifestation of a theoretical debate. After all, the classification of the regime has broad political implications. A country definition as a democracy or non-democracy can have far-reaching effects both on external and external legitimization. Israel categorization as a democracy could therefore be viewed as promoting the legitimization of its regime. Defining it as a non-democracy, on the other hand, may call its legitimacy into question, while indicating the need for a radical re regime change or radical change in the status quo. This debate also echo a more basic debate, whether Israel is so-called normal state or is it a settler colonial society, an active relict of the colonial order. This debate can be located at the political sphere, especially among INGOs like the BDS movement and the counteractive of Israel and their supporters to fight the claim that Israel is an apartheid regime. But it, it can also be found in the academic literature about the Israeli regime. We can see here in the slide. The next one, the next one. The next one. Mm -hmm. the other way. Yeah. Uh, we can see here in the slide uh, that Israel was classified all the way from liberal democracy to diminished type of democracy and up to different names of non-democracy, where apartheid is just one option. As you can see here on, 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 on the slide, which refer to the various classification in the literature. Uh, again, this is all scholars who refer to the way Israel regime should be defined, classified in the last 20, 25 years. And I'm not going to get into details on the name. I just want to share with you the different perspectives about the nature of the regime. At this point, I have to clarify that the title of the book, Israel Regime Untangled, is a bit misleading since one might expect that I can propose a bypass for this debate and by offering a correct classification of the regime. Well, the argument is the book is a bit different. It does not suggest a correct classification of the Israeli regime vis-a-vis -vis this debate. Instead, it argues that there are inherent challenges in Israeli regime classification when this issue, issue is inspected from a political science perspective. I would like to clarify this point. I'm a political scientist and and I study a, a regime classification and analysis and not political and normative arguments about the regime. And I'm, my intent in the book is to view the regime from the perspective that we use in political science to classify regimes. So what are the inherent challenges in Israel regime classification from the political science perspective? There are two inherent uh, challenges when it comes to uh, the classification of the Israeli regime. The first one, which, uh, which is a rather uh, general, uh, a broad uh, challenge for other regimes as well, is the analytical weaknesses of the concept of democracy in the context of disputed regimes. And the second one is the question of the Israeli regime borders. I will now take a few minutes to explain each of these challenges and the way I propose in the book to handle this, uh, 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 these challenges. And let me start with the first challenge, the analytical weaknesses of the concept of democracy. I argue that the Israeli case illustrates the analytical weaknesses of the concept of democracy in the context of disputed regime. There is inherent challenge in the classification of a regime, not only the Israeli regime, but other regimes as well, as a whole, in cases like Israel, which deviate from the model of established liberal democracy from the one end, or rigid authoritarianism from the other end. 
which and this deviation undermine the efficacy of the concept of democracy as an analytical tool for studying regime. There is a long debate about the concept of democracy. And you can see in this quote, another one. You can see here two quotes which reflect this debate. The first quote that you can read is a quote for Larry Diamond, probably one of, if not the prominent scholar of democracy in political science all across the world, who reflect that there is a very long debate about what is democracy from the first place. And the later the, uh, uh, a quote for Michael Coppedge, who is the PI of the VDEM, a variety of democracy, which is the new way of understanding democracy or measuring democracy or measuring a regime, where he uh, argue part of, of about the argument that there are a, a inherent problem in any attempt to define and to measure a regime as a democracy or not, and especially this problem is evident in places which are under dispute, as in the Israeli case. Therefore, in in order to address the challenge. I follow the approach, Michael Coppedge approach in his college, that calls for disaggregating democracy into specific dimensions and to examine their level of democraticness as a way to bypass the problem. So bypassing analytical weaknesses by the using of the concept of democraticness. Democraticness is not neither a topology, nor classification to a specific form regime. It's not being used to say this regime is democracy or not. Instead, it reflects continuous process of democratization and democratizations, different level of democracy, if you would like, across different dimensions. And focusing on democratization, shift the attention from debating if a case is democracy or not, to the factors that shapes the level of democraticness across different dimensions. So again, we have analytical weaknesses with the concept of democracy itself, which is unrelated to the case of Israel. And I propose that we should follow, instead of debating how to name the regime, I propose that we should follow the uh, updated approach in the study of the, the democracy and to look on democraticness of the regime across different dimensions. And in the case of Israel, I study, I'm focusing on these three uh, 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 dimensions, but there are other dimensions that also can be studied. I'm not arguing that these are the only dimension, relevant dimensions. There are other, other dimensions that could be studied. I focus on political contention, the, uh, uh, the procedural and social arrangement for political competition of power, the procedural aspect of democracy, if you would like protection, which is the defensive of subjects from the state's actions and intervention in their life, the liberal aspect of democracy would like, and also the issue of equality, which can be found in the dimension of coverage, and which refer to the extent which the entire population can enjoy and participate in political process, and to enjoy protection from the state without differentiation between categories in the population. And these three dimensions, three dimensions are aspects of democratic so aspects of regime, that should be analyzed differently. And here in the slide, you can see the description of, the, uh, of these dimensions in Israel by using VDEM, data varieties of democracy data. And you can see in the upper line, the blue line, for the, there is example of an index who is measuring the political contention. They, by using index like clean ele election index, we can surely use other indexes. In the uh, green line, you can see the aspect of uh, uh, protection, the, the, uh, the liberal aspect, again, which can measure with individual civil and political liberty indexes or well, as well as other indexes that can be used. And the red uh, line, the most uh, uh, lowest level of democraticness is the coverage, the equal protection is, again, we can think of uh, other indexes as well, which can be used to uh, describe uh, the Israeli regime. Again, there is a, a highest level of political contention the liberal aspect is more limited and the coverage is even uh, uh, more limited. And the regime by and large uh, is rather stable uh, uh, regime, at least by uh, uh, these uh, indexes. So this is my uh, attempt to bypass the fair challenges, but in many ways, this figure is misleading. By putting, no, go to the other one. 
by uh, using this figure in a way I'm misleading your, uh, the audience because this index refer only to part of the regime. This is only partial description of the Israel regime since it refer only to part of the unit of Israel. Israel within its formal borders. And this lead me to the second challenge when it comes to the question of the Israel regime. And this is the way how we should classify Israel borders. And the question regarding the, the, Israel, the, the classification of the Israel regime is also not new when it comes to its border. The bulk of most of the existing literature or the scholarly literature uh, uh, has, has addressed or used what is uh, usually called Israel proper or uh, uh, Israel within the green line, Israel with its original uh, borders between the, between the 60, uh, 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 67 war, uh, a unit that does not include the occupied territories. And this is the uh, unit where there is a formal uh, legal sovereignty and it does not include the occupied uh, territories, at least not when it comes to Jerusalem, it's, it's another issue. This approach is also in line with the classification of Israel in, close, in cross-national regime indexes. Freedom House, for example, classify Gaza and the West Bank as different units from Israel, which are defined as territories in a similar way to the way Freedom House classify Indian Kashmir as a distinct territory from India. It's not part of India, again, according to Freedom House. So, and according to Freedom House, the regime in the West Bank in Gaza is not part of the Israeli regime. The Israel-Palestine definition of the unit of analysis is offered as a critical alternative to the focus on Israel proper. The location of Israel borders define the unit of analysis and that definition determines how the regime is classified. In other words, determining the unit analysis as Israel proper or as Israel-Palestine Establish the nature of the regime as a democracy, diminished democracy, or as a type of a non-democracy, respectively. I argue in the book that these justifications advanced from the choice of borders are rather limited. Israel cannot be classified only by as Israel proper, and not only at the same time, it cannot be classified as Israel-Palestine. Instead, from a functional point of view, States, again, from a functional point of view, how would states function? States are indifferent for international recognition of their borders, and they don't even require a clear juridical definition of their territory. State as a bureaucratic agency can act in territories without international recognition and without clear and universal status under the law. And a regime is a certain class of relation between a given state or a given uh, authoritative power, a given bureaucracy, and those who are subject to state control. So following this logic, the same executive power that allocates resources in Israel proper, in Israel in its international, formal international border, recognized borders, also allocate resources to a certain extent, different resources in the occupied territories. But again, not in all the territories because we have differences in the form of control in the Gaza Strip, in Azon, and I'm not going to get into that because I presume that those who are interested in Israel know the differences uh, in the way the occupied territories are being handled. So this conceptual elaboration showed that the unit of Israel proper or Israel-Palestine cannot be used to define the borders of the regime. I propose in the book instead a special analysis that divide the Israel regime into different zones of control at the different time periods. There is the Israel in the uh, 48 borders. There is Israel and the occupied territories what, that was under the Israeli control, the, the entire unit between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, and it was a, a the situation of direct control until the Oslo process. And since the Oslo process and the this, and especially after this engagement from Gaza, the form of control uh, on the territory is much more complex. And there is Israel, there is, is Jerusalem, and the ways it controls Area C, annexed Jerusalem, uh, uh, is, is different. And 
this different unit cannot be compelled into a one unit. There is a need to a spatial uh, definition of, uh, of the regime, okay? So let me conclude uh, uh, the key arguments in the book about the regime. I argue that the Israel regime conflicting classifications not only reflects different political camps and not only reflect different perspectives about the future scenarios about uh, Israel, they also reflect the limit of democracy as an analytical concept. And this aggregating the concept of democracy to inspect democraticness of regime dimensions could be viewed as a way to bypass this debate. A second issue is that the unit, unit of analysis of, of the Israeli case cannot be defined as Israel proper, nor it could define as the entire Israel-Palestine. There is a need for a spatial analysis of the case. There are different forms of democraticness in different uh, 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 zones of control, which require much more uh, uh, accurate uh, uh, view of the regime that a bold naming of the regime as a democracy, diminished democracy, or as a party regime cannot provide us for analytical purposes. So in this book, I illustrate, besides what I saw so far, how the description I propose can be used for analyzing factors like the effects of the conflict, the Israeli-Arab conflict on the regime, and also how state capacity can explain the relevant stability of the regime as well as changes that occurred in the regime. Overall, if I would conclude my argument, when supporters and opponents of Israel, of the current status quo in Israel, describe it as democracy, non-democracy, apartheid, diminished democracy, etc., etc., they show their blind spots by choosing a priori definition of democracy or the borders of the units in line with their basic predispositions. These blind spots undermine the arguments made by supporters and opponents of Israel. For example, if Israel is the so-called only democracy in the Middle East, how is it possible that over a third of the residents of the capital city cannot vote in the national elections? Just one example. Exclusion for participation in, in election is far from even the most minimalist definition of democracy. If on the other end, Israel is an apartheid regime, a democratic regime, etc., etc. Why do relatively large numbers of Arab citizens choose to participate in the elections? After all, by participating in the elections, they legitimize the regime as a democracy and not as an apartheid regime. And we can think of many other examples that can be used to show these conflicting perspectives of the Israeli case. And by choosing a name, a definition with a cover the entire a regime in a way we are a, we undermine our ability to explain the case and not just to name the case. And this book, therefore, is my attempt to understand the Israeli regime behind just giving it one name or another. And that's all. Open for question and discussion. Thank you, uh, Dr. Ariely. You have uh, really, in a very fascinating uh, way, uh, kind of opened the discussion and introduced your book uh, about the nature of regime in Israel. And uh, you have very rightly uh, pointed out, uh, I mean, in terms of how uh, definitions, uh, you know, can be imposed, and most of the time they emanate from the vantage point of an individual or a group's understanding of the other. In that sense, uh, I think Israel uh, uh, you know, provides a very good example in how polarizing the debate becomes uh, when it comes to, uh, I mean, many other debates also, but also the political system and political uh, culture in Israel. Uh, and, and it was a fascinating, uh, you know, introduction to your book. Uh, you have very, uh, uh, you know, uh, clearly pointed out that we're calling Israel apartheid regimes and how does one actually understand, I mean, you know, make sense of such a large number 
of Arab citizens of Israel, uh, you know, participating in the elections. And at the same time, you know, there are set, uh, you know, residents in Jerusalem, in the capital city, who are not able to, you know, participate uh, in the elections and participate in the voting process. Uh, I'm sure you have picked the interest of the audience. Uh, and I'll now uh, kind of request everyone to please write your questions or comments uh, in the chat box, or please raise your hand in case you, you would like to ask your question. Uh, as as it, as the you know, uh, we have uh, some uh, senior members uh, who uh, kind of are in the audience. May I now request uh, Professor Joseph Kishishian uh, to kind of use uh, use his uh, you know ask his question or comments, Professor Kishishian. Uh -huh. Thank you very much, uh, Mudassir, and thank you very much, Professor Ariely, for a, a fascinating presentation. As I was listening to you, uh, and, I, and I really liked the way you classified the various democratization processes, the one that really caught my attention was uh, orthodemocracy. And, and that is fascinating to me because the question that really uh, poses itself is whether or not a society that is religious by nature can become a democratizing society. Of course, we've seen this not just in the case of Israel and the Jewish state, but we've seen it in Europe when, uh, when for centuries, uh, the papacy and the religious dogma prevented democratization from taking off. The same thing as well uh, in most of the Muslim world where we have seen uh, religious uh, values dominate the search for democratization and political participation. So my question to you is the following, and, and, and this is related to, maybe you've touched it in the book and you can perhaps uh, elaborate on it in your answer. Uh, it, it really uh, takes off, to paraphrase Samuel Huntington's clash of civilizations, whether or not we can see in the future the threat of democratization, not from clash of civilizations among nations, but within nations. That is, is democracy in Israel threatened by internal religious cleavages? I will be interested in hearing your comments on that. Can I, should I answer? Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, well, first of all, thank, thanks a lot. I, th I think it's a very, uh, uh, very important question. F first of all, uh, it's important because the classification of Israel as an auto-democracy uh, by one of the scholars who written about Israel is rather unique because this classification is based only on the, the religious aspect. Most of the debates about how to classify Israel is based on the ethno-national clavage between Israelis and between Jews and Arabs. Mm. So in a sense, by focusing only on this aspect, the important question of religion is ignored. And I argue that any name that you give to the regime, camouflage or don't, will not be able to see that the religion is also an important factor. For example, I show you in the slide that the liberal aspect or the liberal rating of Israel is rather low compared to the political contentions. Because in Israel, there is a freedom of religion, but there is no freedom from religion. Because the religious establishment, and this is why, this is the argument behind the classification of Israel for, of, of uh, auto-democracy, because the religious establishment, both for Jews and for Muslims, don't enable the uh, individual choice when would come for, for example, like aspects of marriage, just one example. And also issues of equality, gender equality. It's also a very uh, a prominent issue when uh, 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 there are clashes between the religious aspect and the liberal aspect. So this is one part of the answer. Another part of the answer, again, it's the, the concept of democracy uh, itself. Because in a sense, what you're referring as the clash between religion and democracy refer mainly to the liberal aspect of democracy in a sense that it reflects the liberal values and the limits of state power 
vis-a-vis -vis the individual. But democracy, it's not only, it's not only the uh, liberal democracy. Democracy is also uh, the will of the people. And when the people are religious, or when the, there is a, a dominance of religion in the eyes of people, there is an inherent clash in democracy itself. So I, I disagree in a sense, I, I disagree with, or I think that my, uh, uh, my offering to view democracy in much more untangled way can take the debate of the clashes between religious and democracy one step further. Not just debating if it's, the, if it's a debate between democracy and all and a, a religious and all, but look on how different perspectives of democracy are related to different uh, um, aspects of religious forces. For example, in Israel, the old Orthodox gained prominent political power. And their power is a reflection of a democratic process because they participate in the democratic process. But their power is used to undermine a liberal process in the Israeli society. So any classification of just one aspect of this process as democratic and anti-democratic, again, undermine our ability to understand the process and, and, and we go into the political debate, it can even have some more normative implication by arguing to those religious people, you are not, uh, you are under the democratic, but they, are, they practice they, by, using your democratic practices to advance your worldviews. So I think that the conceptual elaboration is important about the way to you reframe the question. Now, when it comes specific to the clash in Israel, in Israel, there is a, a clear division between the secular camp and the religious camp when it comes to liberal values. And the, the, this cleavage is very evident in uh, the political system, in the political parties. And it's much, uh, most of the political debate is around this clavage all along for, for, for years. But so far this clavage did not undermine the level of the democraticness of the regime because the, again, amongst the Jews, the commitment to Zionism bridge this gap. There is also some imperative <coughs> commitment to the state itself. Again, not, not among the ultra-Orthodox, it's a different story, but there is a, a, a commitment to, a, to find a, a delicate joint balance. Uh, there is a very small, a, a important quote in Israel, we are all Jews in a sense that there is something that unites Jews behind these cleavages. And this is used to undermine the potential damage of this uh, account. Again, there is, there is debate, for example, in, in, in there was a liberalization process uh, in the 90s that there is a bash again, the, this liberalization process, as well as other countries. Now, not, it's not unique to Israel. I think we can always, always also see it in India. Ayelet wrote about it uh, in a way and there was some backlash to that, uh, but these changes are in um, in the uh, in in the playground of the regime, the regime itself. It's not a clash to the extent that you can find in Turkey, for example, between the religious and the secular uh, 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 part of society, which transformed the regime, the level of democraticness of the regime, as we've seen in the last twenty-five years. Uh, two different directions. I hope I hope it's answering your question. Yeah, thank you, thank you, Dr. Aguilar. I think you have really, you know, uh, kind of tried to answer in a very elaborate manner. And many, I mean, you have also kind of uh, made me think about many other examples where you have, uh, you know, some degree of democratization process where uh, you know has led to uh, orthodox forces coming to power and then the reversal of, you know, I'm talking. I'm thinking right now in the back of my mind about Turkey, but there can be many other examples, certainly. Uh, uh, thanks again. Uh, may I now request uh, Ambassador Sanjay Singh uh, if he has any questions or comments, sir? Uh, thank you, Mudasit. Thank you, Dr. Ariely. Uh, from your last uh, answer, uh, I want to uh, think that your analysis is perhaps applicable 
to a number of other geographies. And uh, in a context, and one aspect of that is that states facing non-traditional threats become overtly dependent on security forces and their imperatives. And this naturally has implications for the democratic polity. Here, the role of leadership is very important and can lead to inclusiveness or otherwise. What is your understanding of the role of leadership in such a context? Thank you. No, your, your question, it awaits the billion dollar question in political science, because a political scientists and again, I, and, and, and this, is, this is the world where, 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 I, where I come from. Uh, we're all aware that political leadership is probably the most uh, important issue. It's the actor uh, in the system who changed things, who to different, to different version, to inclusiveness, to exclusiveness, etc., etc. But there is also a consensus that this is the most uh, problematic uh, topic to, uh, to analyze and to, and, and to study. We know that it is important, but we have very, very limited uh, to analyze the way leadership uh, behave without just descriptions. And this is why in political science analysis, we most of the time look on context. We look on the way political culture explains democratization. We look on the way religious is related to the level of democracy. We look on the ways economic development can explain level of democraticness in, uh, in countries and to look at outliers like China and ask ourselves why it's an outlier, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we don't have uh, any uh, valid tool to understand the, uh, the role of leadership. Our, at least my, my scholarly work can only point to the context to the structural factors and my argument that given these structural factors, different actors can behave in a way that could promote or undermine a, a level of democraticness. For example, in Israel in the last 20 years, there is a very strong political backlash against the, against the Supreme Court because the Supreme Court is an agency of liberalization, is an agency of equality before the law. And if I go back to, uh, to, to the uh, uh, former question about uh, religion, it was viewed by the religious forces as something that undermined their worldview, their positions by imposing um, foreign values on the society, okay? Uh, now, this backlash did not materialize to any uh, meaningful changes in the status of the court. There wasn't any institutional changes in the court. There wasn't any court packing. There wasn't any uh, uh, just dimension, et cetera, et cetera. In the last year or two, given the charges against uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, who is uh, the most prominent political actor in Israel, there is a situation where these structural factors of the religious forces who are trying to uh, stop the liberalization process and to rule out the role of the, the court and the personal interested, interests of Netanyahu, which again is, is uh, unhappy with uh, his uh, 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 personal situation in front of the court. Yesterday, at the, at the Israeli parliament, at the Knesset, there was the first call of a, a proposal, of a law proposal, that the parliament could bypass, overrule any decision of the court. Okay? Again, and this is the way a, a leadership can change the course of democratization when there are other forces who waited for 20 years to, uh, 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 to make such uh, uh, changes. But specifically, it was done in a situation where uh, uh, this leadership uh, 
needed to address specific political problem. At the same token, and, and I use this example in order to uh, emphasize the importance to look at a different level of democracy. Yesterday, or, or in the last few a few days, there is also a very, very increasing legitimization of a coalition government that will be that will be based on the uh, 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 on the Arab Party of the Islamic Arab Party, uh, and this legitimization can be found among prominent religious figures in a, in the right thing, right in the radical right uh, wing camp. So, in a sense, the situation of Netanyahu, in order to advance his coalition, can also used for inclusiveness of Arab citizens that done in the last 20 years, just a few days ago, there were letters by the most prominent religious figures in the ultra order, in the religious camps, who argue that Israel government that can be used, the Islamic party votes, can be justified. This is a huge transformation of inclusiveness. So in a sense, in, in different ways, a specific actor, Netanyahu, move for a retreat from uh, the level of demo from democratization. And for uh, under another aspect, is also promoting the inclusiveness. Okay? So in a sense, actors are the, the most important thing. And they can affect the level of democracy in different ways and to different uh, levels. You can take, for example, again, you, you uh, mentioned earlier the, the example of Turkey. We can, take, we can take Turkey under Erdogan, who was under process of increasing democratization in the early 20s, when it comes to the inclusiveness of the Kurds, and, and they also the inclusiveness of the religious camp in, uh, in the political process. And we also see this shift in the last few years in the level of democracy in Turkey. So the actors can change the course uh, to different directions, across different spheres. I hope it's clarified uh, the, the question. Thank you, uh, Dr. Reddy. Uh, actually, uh, maybe let me take this uh, you know, opportunity to draw you out a little bit on the question of the Islamic movement uh, in Israel and in the Southern branch. You know, there are now, as you were also mentioning, uh, that uh, the, uh, the Zionist religious uh, group is uh, saying that they are fine with this idea of uh, the Islamic movement, uh, you know, participating in the government. This is this is quite fascinating. And I, I was actually writing a chapter uh, on this issue and as to how the Islamic movement in Israel has transformed itself from uh, the way it started in 1970s, you know, and then how it has come to a situation where part of the, at least part of the uh, movement is now, uh, you know, on the verge of perhaps joining the government. And, and your point about how this advances the idea of uh, democratization. I mean, this is something you know, very fascinating, but my concern, I mean, my question is related to how is it that, you know, in the previous uh, election, when it comes to the uh, uh, Likud party and Benjamin Netanyahu, there was a lot of noise about you know, not even allowing Arab citizens to participate in the election or, you know, a lot of discussion about how they are manipulating the elections and this transformation within within a time frame of uh, six months or a year, uh, you know, how does that this transformation uh, take place? And apart from the those people who are endorsing such transformation, uh, what is the reaction of the other other Israeli groups, other political groups in Israel including the uh, secular Arabs who, who were for, for a very long time part of the uh, labor or, you know, uh, later joined, made the uh, joint list. So how is the reaction within the Israeli political groups? Well, uh, I think that the basic reaction so far is a universal surprise by everyone because the process of inclusiveness of this party in the coalition is something that was, again, it was unimaginable 
a, a few, I don't know, few months ago. Uh, again, I, I will emphasize the broader context. The last time that there was an Israeli government who was a minority government who, uh, uh, by uh, external uh, support from uh, our political parties, were the second government of Yitzhak Rabin in the 90s, the government which uh, advanced the Oslo agreements and inclusiveness of Arab citizens and liberalization of Israel. And there was a huge backlash, a huge, huge backlash against uh, any government or any decisions major political decision that will be made without what is described as a Jewish majority. And you can see in polls from the seven, from the 80s, there are polls where you can find that among the majority of the Jews, 70%, even 80% of the Jews believe that when it comes to K decisions, uh, 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 the civic majority is irrelevant only the national majority, majority of uh, Jews MPs in the parliament can justify uh, such shifts. And this was in a way the, the consensus until, uh, until the last elections. And we can see how this con consensus is changing. And there are, there are several explanations. One, again, is the role of the actor, Netanyahu, who is using it sometimes against the Arabs and sometimes for his own good. But there are also a very long process that we should understand, and this is the effect of um, the, the long effect of the so-called Arab, Arab Spring on, Palestine, on, the, on, on, the, on the Arab citizens in Israel. Because the Arab Spring, Spring, in a way, showed that not only democracy did not materialize in the Arab states, it also that even the states themselves uh, does not don't provide citizens the most basic uh, 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 needs and requirements, and in a way, among some parts of the Arab, Arab, Arab society, this process led to uh, increasing alignment with the state, and there, this is one aspect. And the and the COVID uh, 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 process again. We are all aware we started the day with, with, with awareness to the effects of the COVID. And in a way, in Israel, the government's provision and ability to address the COVID, it, it's okay. Compared to the Baud region, even compared to other countries, there is a, a very a generous a, a finance support. A, there is a very a impressive a, a vacation a, that we, there, there, there is no Basically, there's no uh, COVID in Israel in the last few weeks. And this helped to legitimize the state among, uh, more among major parts of the, of the Arab citizens, because they some of them prefer to align to the states than to alternative uh, 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 forces. So, but again, I think it's too soon to really uh, analyze that because the, the immediate political reaction is just surprise. Thanks, thanks for shedding light. I was actually uh, trying to write a chapter. I mean, I was writing a chapter more on the transformation of the Islamic movement itself, but then this development happened, and I was completely, you know, <laughs> confused myself as to what is happening. So, thank you for uh, you know shedding some light on that. Uh, may I now request, sir, if you have any question or comment? Uh, thanks, Mr. Sir. And uh, very delightful to hear you, my friend, Dr. Riele. Um, you know, you, you unpack your, uh, all your arguments of uh, democracy and the uh, typologies. Um, I have a small problem with the title. You use the word very frequently, regime, both in the title and your conversation. Normally, you know, you, you people use the word Israeli regime generally communicate an anti-Israeli message. You don't have to say anything beyond that. The moment normally they say Zionist regime and now somebody say the Israeli regime. And but instead of saying the Israeli state, what compelled you to use the word regime? Well, I use, I use the word regime 
uh, in the book title and my talk, I don't use the word democracy. And I don't use, I just use it as an example, but I don't use the word democracy to describe the regime. And I don't also not use the word states because uh, my education political scientist uh, uh, told me that you have to focus your uh, attention at the most uh, um, central issue. And again, I, I explained uh, before that a regime is, uh, is relation between a bureaucratic body and those who are subject to, to its influence. So it's not the states itself, it's the relations between the state apparatus and a population in a given territory and behind this territory. So in a way, the old regime is more flexible than the world state, which is more a debate about the regime is a feature of a state and not vice versa. And this is why I used uh, the world regime. And of course, I know that when uh, someone is using the, the, the Zionist regime, it's mm -hmm. a context. That's why it's calling it the Israeli regime, not the Zionist regime. Thank you, uh, Dr. Yuli, for the clarification. Uh, there are a couple of questions in the chat box, and the uh, one is from Dr. Samina Hamid. She has some internet issues, so she's unable to uh, ask her question, but so I'll ask on her behalf. Uh, she says, one of the possible cleavages between religion and democracy is the question of accountability. Uh, to what extent the ultra-Orthodox parties can be held accountable and not evade state regulation, especially in the context of the recent stampede in Israel? It's a, it's a, very, it's a very good question. It's a very uh, uh, timely question because uh, just last week we have a, a, a huge disaster in Israel uh, and it, is bla it, it was a disaster in, in, uh, in uh, uh, I would say it simply as in a, in a religious uh, one of the key religious events in Israel that uh, was ended with a, 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 a mass um, a, many people have been killed in the way the the the, the, uh, the, the, the event was eventually handled and it's put the allegation about uh, the question to what extent uh, ultra-Orthodox parties and the, the establishment are accountable to the general public or to the uh, um, specific uh, uh, public. And again, it, it's go, I think, for this first question uh, 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 by Joseph about the relations between uh, uh, religion uh, uh, and democracy and, and religion in states. Uh, uh, in a sense, uh, in cases like the Israeli cases, as well as other cases, when uh, the religious uh, 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 groups, which have self-perceptions of themselves as minority, uh, even if minority under attack, uh, view the state as a tool mm. to advance their political needs, uh, religious needs, or to protect themselves from the states. Uh, but when this uh, 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 point of departure uh, have to handle with a process where this political establishment get more and more responsibility and get more and more resources and get more and more power, it also put in front the question of accountability, the question of uh, the rule of law. For example, if as a religious uh, a leader of a small party, you are not interested in the rule of law because you have other motivation. If now you are the prime, you are the minister of health or you are the minister of education or you hold the ministry of inferior or, or, or other issues and you have to work in the public, by, by the public administration rule and to use the rule of law and other active and also be accountable because you cannot handle uh, this establishment as a shtetl or as a religious sect or something like that for, for the long time. So in a way, we see a process where the ultra-Orthodox parties, again, until a few years ago, you don't have uh, ultra-Orthodox parties 
on the government, uh, uh, on the government uh, decision board. The ultra-orthodox parties were, they didn't hold a role of ministers, the, the Ashkenazi uh, ultra-orthodox parties, but in recent years, they have become more and more part of uh, uh, the ministers holding a ministerial positions and also, also accountable for ministerial responsibility. And this required them to be more accountable. So I see they, I think that we are in the middle of the process where accountability is a development, at least in these sections of the society. But again, since it's a process, we don't know exactly which direction it will took off. Thank you. Uh, there is another question regarding uh, from Dr. Jatin Kumar. Uh, he asks, uh, would you would you would you be able to throw some more light on on the debate on democracy in Israel within the context of the Israeli basic laws? Um, I mean, how how the basic laws you know uh, looks at democracy? Oh. Well. As, as, as you might know, uh, in, in Israel, we don't have a constitution, we have basic law, and the first basic law that the world uh, was clearly mentioned of the before this include equality, it doesn't include, include what one would understand as the uh, democratic rights, uh, basic democratic rights as you can find in other constitutions. Uh, and in the last basic law that was introduced, the national uh, Jewish uh, basic law uh, uh, three years ago, uh, you don't also you don't you don't you also don't have the world democracy. Equality. There is a regime which is more important is to understand how the Supreme Court uh, developed his interpretation of this law and other aspects of the Israeli system. Uh, which put a lot of uh, liberal and democratic aspects uh, to his decisions. Uh, but again, because the, 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 the constitutional uh, base for democracy is limited, there's also a very strong debate about the court, because uh, as I mentioned before, there is a backlash against this uh, liberalization process. Uh, a question uh, by uh, Minakshi Sadar. Uh, she asked, what has been the limits of Israel's uh, projection of liberal democracy? And how has been the approach of the left wing and the right wing uh, groups uh, on the understanding of Israel as an apartheid state or as a democracy? Uh, you know, how that places uh, in terms of the debate on democracy? When it comes to the Israeli uh, public itself and the Israeli parties, there is no debate whether Israel is a democracy or is an apartheid regime. The Israeli consensus is that Israel is a Jewish and democratic state. This is the consensus. The debate is the balance between these uh, uh, perspectives. The left will, uh, uh, will prefer the more democratic aspect and the right will prefer the more uh, Jewish uh, aspect. But along the political spectrum, from the right wing until the all the way to the left, against among the Jews, only among the Jews parties, this is, this is a, a, a debate within the frame of uh, Jewish and democracy. And the question of occupation or the control of the occupied territories is not perceived as something that undermines democracy, again, there are, of course, uh, voices, critical voices from uh, NGOs, from the academia, but not, there is no key political camps that argue, hey, Israel is a part of the state, uh, we should uh, change our ways. Uh, again, sometimes it uses the rhetoric, 
to justify uh, uh, different policies, but uh, there is a very, very uh, strong consensus of a Jewish democracy, democratic state. Uh, thank you, uh, Dr. Ariely. You have really, uh, you know, kind of given a very fascinating account of, uh, you know, the Israeli democracy, uh, contemporary Israeli democracy, and how, what kind of direction it might be heading at. Thank you for taking your time uh, also to, you know, uh, uh, taking so many questions and answering uh, all, the, all of them. Uh, and, you know, you have really enriched our understanding of the Israeli democracy with your presentation, and we really look forward to uh, read the book. Uh, may I now hand over to Professor Kumar Swami for the final word.